The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing January 22nd, 2021. Has the U.S. government's embrace of emergency use authorization made people vulnerable to improperly tested vaccines? How can vaccine-damaged patients be compensated when the pharmaceuticals manufacturing them have been waived of all legal accountability? Should the turnout of allergic reactions and deaths already lead people to pause development of the vaccine? Are social and traditional media unfairly censoring vaccine critics with valid concerns about the experimental vaccine? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the occasion when there have now been numerous allergic reactions and deaths possibly linked to the use of the new vaccine by companies Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, we try to engage people to discuss the true risks of this treatment and hopefully give our guests a better opportunity to decide for themselves. We will hear first from Meryl Nass, general internist and an epidemic and anthrax expert who has concerns. We'll next hear from Alison McGeer, Canadian infectious disease specialist. Finally, we will hear from Mary Holland, a representative of the Children's Health Defense Organization who opposes it. On this week's program, a life-saving hope or death-defying jab? Three perspectives on the experimental COVID vaccine. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 22, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gaki, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. In addition to pursuing a second PhD in epidemiology, Dr. Brown is a professional timpanist with the Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony Orchestra in Ontario, Canada. In an interview, Dr. Brown said that, quote, the public's overreaction to the coronavirus pandemic was based on the worst miscalculation in the history of humanity, unquote. Dr. Ronald B. Brown's paper, Public Health Lessons Learned from Biases in Coronavirus Mortality Overestimation has remained the most read article in the Journal of Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness for last six months. A follow-up article is currently under peer review with the same journal. Quote, I can promise readers many more insights about the pandemic, says Dr. Brown, assuming the manuscript gets published. That comes from the article, Video, The Silent Enemy, The Lockdown Concerto of Dr. Ronald B. Brown, Ph.D., by John C.A. Manley, posted January 20th. 
One of the motivations for declaring a global pandemic was to make possible the widespread usage of new technology such as facial recognition, digital IDs, and payment systems, mRNA vaccines, and vaccine certificates. This is openly stated in books such as COVID-19, The Great Reset, and The Fourth Industrial Revolution. The engineers of the quote-unquote plandemic recognize that new technology is often resisted by the masses but could be adopted quickly due to a public health crisis. What better way to coerce people into using technology that has long been planned to enslave humanity than by holding them hostage to a deadly virus causing people to fear for their lives. From the outset of the COVID-19 crisis, humanity was told the world could not return to normal without global vaccination against the coronavirus. That comes from the article, Dystopia Now, Surveillance Through Vaccine Certificates, Digital IDs, and Biometric Data, by Jesse Smith, posted January 19th. Outside of long-term care, the risk of dying if you are infected with COVID, is probably less than 0.2% overall, and deaths are concentrated in the frail and elderly. Younger people and healthy people have a much lower risk. Models that predicted hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID in Canada were badly wrong because they used incorrect, exaggerated inputs. Second, Lockdown was never part of our planned pandemic response, nor is it supported by strong science. Lockdown has been used by almost every developed country, and in the great majority of cases, the lack of response speaks for itself. That comes from a letter from the former Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health to the Premier under the headline, We're being locked down for an infection fatality rate of less than 0.2%. Dr. Richard Shabas to Ontario Premier Doug Ford by Dr. Richard Shabas, posted January 19th. If the U.S. decides to overthrow the leadership of another country, then almost everything that we hear in the mainstream news about that country contains elements of propaganda. A good example is the phrase, axis of evil, that President Bush used in 2002 to describe Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. There is nothing particularly evil about these countries or their leaders. Their human rights records were no worse than many of the U.S.'s allies, and they posed no military threat to the U.S. or Britain. Presenting the enemy as evil is an extremely powerful form of propaganda. That comes from the article, The Basic Principles of War Propaganda, The U.S. Lies About Every War. Part 15 of Elephants in the Room series by Rod Driver, posted January 19th, originally posted in medium.com slash elephants in the room. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Thirty-three deaths in Norway, all between the ages of 75 and 80, died after taking the vaccine. In the United States, in the state of California, top 
epidemiologist Erica S. Pan is calling for a pause in the batch of the Moderna vaccine due to the, quote, higher-than-usual number of possible allergic reactions, unquote. Of course, COVID-19, at least according to the popular narrative, is so deadly that this time there may have been no time for delay. On today's show, we have assembled guests to bring unique perspectives to the discussion. Our first guest is Meryl Nass. Dr. Meryl Nass is a general internal medicine physician with 40 years of experience. She's an epidemic and anthrax expert and composes a series of blogs for the site Anthrax Vaccine, as well as global research. I asked her about the risks to new vaccines as she saw it. So there are a lot of adverse events that may occur after a vaccination. And the question is, how do you link the adverse event to the vaccination? Well, if it happens right after, that's a very good linkage. And so anaphylaxis usually happens right after, within 15 or 30 minutes, although in rare cases, it could take up to 24 hours. So if you have an anaphylactic, that's a very serious, potentially life-threatening allergic reaction to something in the vaccine. Um, and uh, people are having those reactions at 10 times the reported rate from flu shots and 10 times the rate from other shots. And these are, these are CDC rates. So CDC has acknowledged that the rate is 10 times higher than what they would have expected. You have to have adrenaline, which is also called epinephrine, and you, you have to have a, a crash cart, you know, other drugs, and you have to have people who know how to resuscitate you if that happens, because your blood pressure drops, your throat may close up, you may not be able to breathe. Um, and the American College of Allergy has suggested that you shouldn't get the Pfizer uh, COVID vaccine unless you're in a situation where doctors are around to resuscitate you. In other words, getting it in a drugstore with untrained people or a supermarket um, may not be the smartest way to, to get this vaccine. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the anaphylaxis occurring at 10 times the rate uh, that it occurs with the usual flu vaccine. Um, do you know of any other causes or instances where special treatments should be followed but are not really? Well, I think, I'm not sure what you mean by special treatments, but in terms of special advice, in England, people were told that if they had serious allergies to avoid the vaccine. They were not told that in the US. They were told instead, stay an extra 15 minutes just in case you have a reaction that's a few minutes delayed. So ordinary people are supposed to wait 15 minutes after a shot to make sure they don't have an allergic reaction. And people with known severe allergies, like myself, um, are supposed to wait for 30 minutes before they leave the site. Um, another thing that was different was in the UK, we had no data, we still, as far as I know, have no data on this vaccine in pregnancy and lactation. And so in the UK, pregnant women were advised to avoid it. In the United States, the CDC did not take a stand and basically advised women and their physicians to decide amongst themselves whether a pregnant woman should have it. Now, that was done in part because the CDC and the FDA needed pregnant cases. They needed 
a number of pregnant women to take the vaccine so they would have enough cases to be able to put on the label when there is a label, um, when the vaccine is approved, that it's approved for pregnant women. So they were looking to collect more. And, and this was acknowledged during the FDA advisory meeting that they needed to collect cases in pregnant women. So uh, those were warnings that were played down in the US and were played up in the UK. Um, presumably they were looking at the same or very similar data when those guidelines were made. You have to realize that the all of the COVID vaccines, we've had two which have been authorized but not approved in the United States. There are at least three more coming down the pike that are being manufactured, have not yet been authorized, have not completed their rudimentary clinical trials. They're all going to continue with their clinical trials even after they are authorized for use. The, but the standard for authorization is a very low bar in the US. You, you all that you need, the only standard you need to meet is that the known or presumed benefits exceed the known or presumed harms. So, so in other words, the less you know about the vaccine, the easier it is to authorize it for an emergency. And, and so that's the standard we're going on. And meanwhile, the CDC and FDA are collecting data. Everybody who gets the vaccine now is basically an experimental subject, is asked to download an app on their phone and to report back to CDC of what reactions they may be having. Um, the emergency use authorization in the United States that you speak of, um, it, it ensures the, the approval of the FDA getting the vaccine uh, approved and then shot in the arms of millions of Americans. You said in the article, given it gives them the green light to approve anything they want to approve with minimal actual data. I mean, could you maybe you know, heighten the, the risk? I mean, could you go into more detail about how, how this is put in place and how it's heightening the risk? Well, uh, let me go back and say, uh, maybe I used the wrong word because FDA is very clear. We have not approved these vaccines. They are not licensed. They are not approved. They, they don't have a label. There are, there's no list of side effects you can go to, whether on the internet or with the, there's no package insert for these vaccines. These are uh, experimental products. Um, we know that the anaphylactic rate is very high because that happens immediately after you get a shot. But for the side effects that happen a few days or weeks down the road, we have almost no information. There have been a number of cases of facial palsy, Bell's palsy, um, at least 30 after vaccinations. They are very likely to be a side effect because they have been a side effect from other vaccines, including the anthrax vaccine. But we don't, we can't prove it yet because we don't have enough numbers. Um, remember, we've only been getting these vaccines in the United States. They've only been given for a little less than five weeks. So the data is being collected. We don't know what the risks are. We don't know what the benefits are. We don't know how well they actually protect because the way the clinical trials were done all to, to 
be counted as a case of COVID, you needed a positive PCR test um, and one symptom. And that symptom could be fatigue, a cough, a sore throat, you know, a runny nose, that's it. So if you had a positive PCR, and we know there are many false positive PCRs, and one little symptom could have been nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, you would be counted as a case. And so if you had fewer cases of that type of case after the vaccine, the vaccine was said to be effective. But what they weren't counting were severe cases. There were only a handful. There were less than 10, I believe, severe cases in the Pfizer trial. Um, so we don't really know whether this vaccine protects you from getting a severe case. We don't know if it protects you from spreading the disease. It appears in the monkey studies that the vaccinated monkeys were still able to be infected. So they had some virus in their throat. Whether they could still spread it, how much virus they had is unclear. Pfizer has not shared that information with us. So Pfizer and the FDA together basically have colluded in saying that only minimal information about the vaccines is acceptable because we're not giving them a license. If we were giving them a license, we would need lots more information, but we're not, we're just authorizing them. So we need almost nothing and we'll let the vaccine be authorized and we'll let it be used. And then we'll find out how effective and how risky it is. And I have to say that the, the head of the vaccine section at FDA 21 years ago wrote in a paper that this would be how emergency use vaccines might be used. That first you give them to lots of people and then you figure out what the side effects are after a million or 10 million people have received them. Um, now you mentioned like the, the Pfizer and, and Moderna companies, uh, I mean, they used messenger RNA for the first time. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, so the first time you have this special virus out there. Um, but uh, as, as you've already indicated, there were some problems with, you know, the, with the way they, they tested at PCR and, and so on. Um, could, could you maybe, is there anything else that stands out for you as to how the vaccine was planned and manufactured that you don't trust? The vaccine, uh, each vaccine contains um, some mutation of the spike protein, which is about 13% of the genome. So that about 4,000 um, nucleotides, uh, which would give you about, I don't know, 1,300 amino acids in the protein. And, and it contains, and it's, put into what they call a lipid nanoparticle. So polyethylene glycol and some other lipids are mixed with the messenger RNA, which is a factory product. Not, not made in cells can be, you know, synthesized inorganically. And I hope that's the right word. And um, injected into people. And there has never been a vaccine that's used either these lipid nanoparticles or messenger RNA uh, in humans ever before. So there have been experimental vaccines, but nothing has ever been licensed. So 
we don't know whether these components of the vaccine are going to cause long-term injuries or side effects down the road, but there are reasons to think they could. Um, there are a number of places on the spike protein where the um, amino acid sequence is identical to human proteins. And so if those parts of this, so the messenger RNA is designed to utilize the cell's machinery to make more spike proteins. And then that in turn is, is hoped to stimulate your immune system to make antibodies and T cells against the spike protein. But because the spike protein itself or pieces of it may be toxic and may be inherently toxic, in fact, um, some of the dangers from COVID may be the result of parts of the spike protein, which themselves cause damage. Um, the spike, even though it's the most immunogenic, it's, it's the part of the virus that your body will mobilize to fight most aggressively more than other parts of the virus, it, it still um, may not be the safest part to use. And so these are, these are questions. And unfortunately, because of emergency laws that were passed after 9-11, the US government and many other governments um, decided that it would be okay to, in an emergency, a bioterror emergency or a pandemic emergency, to quickly create drugs and vaccines and use them on the population without really knowing what was going to happen. So our laws were changed. We haven't really had to do this much before. So those laws have not been challenged. They were all passed within the last uh, about 15 years. And we're gonna find out from this whether, whether it was smart to make those laws or whether before we started buying vaccines, for the whole population, they should have had um, much better, more, more normal type of testing. There's also the, the debacle in case of a different vaccine-related injury that the pharmaceutical companies <clears throat> are not liable. <clears throat> the, the, the compensation available, for, but for only a year. Um, yes. Talk about um, the prospects. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that because it, the, so when these laws were passed, there were a series of them and they, all, they did different things. So one authorized the uh, production of vaccines and drugs with very little evidence. And another said, well, if you're, if you're going to designate that this is an emergency product, we'll take away all the liability. And this was modeled on the uh, National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, but was much broader. It gave stronger liability to the manufacturing companies, but also to other people. And this is interesting. So it gave blanket liability to the, the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, anyone who was going to inject or anyone who is shipping these products, anyone manufacturing them. So for example, you know, we're calling uh, one of the next 
two of the vaccines that are in the pipeline are the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And they, those are well-known companies. We, you know, maybe we trust them. Johnson and Johnson had a, a bad powder that may, that has been found in the courts to have contributed to ovarian cancer. But in any event, those seem like reputable companies, but guess who is going to make the vaccines they designed? The anthrax vaccine manufacturer, which is not a reputable company. Um, but they'll all have this blanket liability. And interestingly, the uh, government officials who wrote these laws gave themselves liability. So the original law included quote unquote government program planners um, as part of the people who have had their liability waived. They have subsequently changed the language and they took out government. So they just say program planners. But basically anybody who designs this program, if they design it wrong and you're, and you're getting the wrong medicine, you know, whether they're at CDC or HHS, you can't sue. Another program got created to deal with these emergency products and it's um, called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. It's a very stingy, very poor response to the possibility of injury. It was created about 10 years ago. It's had over 400 people apply for their injuries. Um, it's only given out money to about 30 people. The average amount they received was about $150,000. There's no fund. Congress has to appropriate money for this fund. And um, so if a lot of people are injured, there's not much money in the fund right now to cover that. Um, and there's a one-year statute of limitations. There are no judges. There are no lawyers you go through a purely administrative process, which means you bring your medical records to the Department of Health and Human Services and an employee looks them over and decides whether the Department of Health and Human Services is going to pay you. And there, there's no real appeal process. If you don't like being turned down, you can only go back to the Department of Health and Human Services and ask them to look again at your case. That's it. You never go in front of a judge or jury, um, there's no other appeal. And the Department of Health and Human Services acts as defendant, judge, jury, and they're the ones who pay you the money. So um, it's a terrible program, basically gives you, as Mary Holland attorney said, it gives you the right to uh, be refused. And people don't know this, they, they have no idea that, there, that this special program has been created because the program creators knew that the, that the drugs and vaccines manufactured under emergency conditions would have greater risks and they didn't want the government to have to pay a lot of money to, to manage those risks. So that's why this program exists. It's called the CICP, it has a website, and people should really look at it and see what their options are. They, they only pay for unreimbursed medical expenses and unreimbursed loss of work. Uh, there are no other payments for anything else. Wow. Um, you know, I, I just to, to bring in the big picture, uh, I'm for science, okay? Uh, and I get the general understanding that the enormous wealth accumulation of 
big pharma, coupled with this emergency situation politically to, to get a vaccination out as soon as possible is, is causing people to take risks that, that were reflected in the article, COVID-19 politicization, corruption and suppression of science. That was written by a BMJ editor, Kamran Abbasi. What do you think? Is that a phenomenon in the larger picture? I think he wrote a brilliant article and I think, yes. Uh, what can I say? I mean, Kamran Abbasi, executive editor of the British Medical Journal, a uh, very prominent doctor, called out the corruption um, by the government uh, around many aspects of its response to the coronavirus pandemic. And, um, and this vaccine issue is just, just one area where companies have made an enormous amount of money you know, almost all the companies making these vaccines, at least for the US market, have, have been given billions of dollars to begin with, to start the process. Um, whether they make a good product or not, you know, the government has committed to buy these products and people need to understand that. That was Dr. Meryl Nass, epidemic and anthrax expert. You can learn more by visiting her blog, anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Our next guest is Alison McGeer. She is a specialist in internal medicine and is a Canadian infectious disease specialist in the Sinai Health System. She has led investigations into the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak in Toronto and worked alongside Donald Lowe. During the COVID-19 pandemic, McGeer has studied how SARS-CoV-2 survives in the air. I first asked her if she believed the vaccine should be paused in the face of these instances of allergic reactions and deaths. Yeah, so the answer to that is absolutely not. You know, the when when we introduce new vaccines and start using new vaccines, we are very, very careful about safety surveillance. And so that means that whenever we see something, okay, question of increased allergic reactions in uh, California appears to be associated with one batch, batch gets pulled until we sort it. It'll, it's, it's, it's probably not anything important. It'll probably go back in, but you just don't know that. In Norway, um, there have been a number of deaths in long-term care um, after the vaccine introduction. Um, my understanding from the count is it's actually less than the expected number of deaths in long-term care for that period of time. So it is entirely appropriate that people record them, that they investigate them, that they ask whether there's any potential association with the vaccine because we need to be very careful. But it's almost certainly true that in, in Norway, there is, those are expected deaths that occur. And when you vaccinate frail elderly residents of long-term care, unfortunately, their case fatality rate from all sorts of diseases is relatively high. 
And so it's unlikely that any of those will turn out to be associated with vaccine. But Norway has not stopped its vaccination program. It's just recommended that a, a little bit of caution in elderly residents of long-term care specifically, in the same way that the UK advocated some caution um, with people who'd had anaphylactic reactions to previous vaccines initially, but now with more experience, with knowing that the risk of anaphylactic swell, it's not zero, never is with a vaccine or for that matter with any medication you take, um, uh, but it's low enough that um, that people don't need to be worried any longer. So, so we can expect with a new very large vaccine program rolling out that because of the extreme caution that we apply to new vaccines, um, there's gonna be temporary holds on things. There's gonna be lots of investigations. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the vaccine at all. Um, and it certainly in this circumstance doesn't mean that taking the vaccine is not the safer of two choices. You know, you we tend to think that okay, I'm choosing whether or not to get the vaccine. But that's not actually the choice. The choice is I am choosing to get vaccinated or I am choosing to live exposed to COVID-19. And living exposed to COVID-19 is not a risk-free thing to do. Um, COVID-19 is a dangerous virus. 3,000 people a day are dying from it in the United States. Um, and so it, it's a balance, you know, which is a riskier thing to do, get the vaccine or get COVID. And no question from the data we have at the moment um, for a great many adults, particularly older adults, getting the vaccine is a safer option. Are they adequately being warned of this risk? I mean, if they, that you could get, you know, the anaphylaxis or, or possibly even a remote chance of dying before they take this uh, this virus and they, they can decide, would you rather have the vaccine or would you rather have COVID? Yes, I, I, I think the answer is yes. I, whenever we give somebody a vaccine, it should come with adequate information. I think there's been lots of discussion, which has been very useful uh, about allergic reactions to vaccine, a lot of information about how frequent they are. Um, I, I think, you know, any time that a healthcare provider offers you medication for or a healthcare provider of any sort offers you any intervention, whether it be medication or vaccine or manipulation or injections, there should always be a discussion about uh, risks and benefits and people should be making an informed choice. Um, and, and, and I would hope that that's what people are doing um, with respect to COVID vaccines. Um, now, this uh, vaccine, the first vaccines uh, are involving messenger RNAs. Uh, they've never been used before. It's the first time that they're going out, uh, but you know, they, they weren't using lab animals. The, the FDA, the Health Canada, they approved it. Uh, is it possible that in some way they've operated in haste? I mean, they're so active, you know, so much in a hurry to get this vaccine that you know, better a bad vaccine than no vaccine at all. What do you say to that? No, I, well, we do actually use mRNA vaccines in veterinary practice or a number of mRNA vaccines that people are using. We've been investigating them in humans for a long time. Most commonly in humans, they, they're used in testing in, in cancer vaccines so that the attempt to vaccinate you against your own cancer cells so that your body will attack and kill cancer. Um, but there are also some mRNA vaccines for influenza, for instance, that are in development, have not been used widely in humans um, 
uh, in part because we didn't expect them to work very well. So um, uh, we can expect to see a lot more mRNA vaccines out there um, uh, now that we found they work so well against, uh, against COVID-19. Um, but they have been subject to exactly the same and very stringent safety assessments that any vaccine comes to market that has. This is not that we have not applied the same safety standards to these vaccines. It's just that because COVID is out there and because we know how dangerous it is, we've been careful to do them really quickly. So it's, it's involved a great many people and a lot of their time, um, but we haven't cut corners on any of the safety assessments. These vaccines got tested in animals. They got tested in humans in small numbers initially. They've been through the entire usual process for vaccines. Um, it's just been more quickly than we usually do it. Well, um, two prominent doctors in Europe. Uh, there was uh, William Wodard, who's a, a former chair of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council, uh, Council of Europe Health Committee, and Michael Yeadon, a, a former chief science advisor. They submitted a petition in early December to stop the rollout of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines on the ground that there were four perceived dangers. Uh, they include the, the formation of non-neutralizing antibodies, which could result in an exaggerated immune reaction if confronted by the real virus, uh, the antibody-dependent amplification. The, uh, there is also, they contain polyethylene glycol, to which 70% of people are allergic and could develop a fatal reaction to the immunization. Uh, also, the vaccines uh, contain antibodies against SARS called two spike proteins. Uh, however, they contribute, can, contribute, can trigger an immune reaction to Sinsintin one, which is essential for the formation of placenta in humans and could leave them infertile. And the short duration of the study does not allow for a realistic assessment of the late effects as happened a decade ago with vaccinations to H1N1s. European medical agencies didn't agree with them. Should they have been? I mean, what do you say to those concerns? Was it charged too soon out of the gates? Yes. So, so the answer to that is unequivocally no. You know, the the it is true that there are some allergic reactions to the vaccine, but we know what that number is now. It's about uh, ten per million doses of vaccine administered. Um, that's a little bit higher than with some other vaccines, but it's still very low. Um, and still, again, in the balancing act of risk of COVID, risk of vaccine, um, it does not change that balance at all. Um, so yes, allergic reactions do happen, but they are distinctly uncommon uh, and uh, and and well within the range of of making uh, us. Um, decide that we should take the COVID vaccine. Uh, the, the fact that we don't know how long the COVID vaccine lasts is uh, absolutely true. That is always true uh, when we introduce new vaccines. And in, in this particular setting, uh, even if the COVID vaccine only lasted for a year, that would be a very significant benefit, you know, that would get us back to normal. Um, and then we'd have to get revaccinated. Well, okay, we get vaccinated against flu every year, you know, we can manage that. Um, and, and so if, if the price of getting our lives back to normal, getting our economy going, is getting a shot every year to protect us from COVID, I, I think most people would be willing to uh, accept that as reasonable. I, I actually think the evidence suggests now that the vaccine will last considerably longer than that, but we will have to see. Nonetheless, 
every time we introduce a new vaccine, we don't know how long it's gonna last, okay? We introduced hepatitis B vaccine in the 1980s, right? We had no idea how long it was gonna last. If we waited to know, we'd still be waiting because the vaccine's good for a lifetime, okay? So you just, you have to introduce vaccines and then you have to do the assessment. It is also true that we don't know whether this vaccine protects you from asymptomatic infection and transmission. Um, and and that, is, that is really important. We want to prevent transmission of this disease. But again, if all the vaccine does is prevent serious illness and it doesn't prevent transmission, that's not great, but it's a lot better than nothing. And that'll mean that we'll switch away from these vaccines ultimately to some other vaccine that does protect you. Um, but if in the meantime, all those vaccines do is prevent people from dying from COVID-19 for the six or eight months until we get other vaccines, that's still well worth having. That was Canadian infectious disease specialist, Dr. Allison McGeer. My next guest had a contrary viewpoint uh, compared to the last one. Her name is Mary Holland. She is the vice chair and general counsel for Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to end childhood health epidemics by working aggressively to eliminate harmful exposures, hold those responsible accountable, and to establish safeguards so this never happens again. Since the, the vaccines have been released, there have been a number of severe allergies and, and even some deaths. Uh, and your uh, associate, the, the defender, printed them up. Uh, are you... Are they related to any of the fears that you had in your list of concerns? I mean, was it a scenario you foresaw? Sadly, Michael, it was a, a scenario that we foresaw. So the only two COVID vaccines available in the United States and in Canada and in many countries right now are what, what are called messenger RNA vaccines. Many people say that they should not even be called vaccines. They are not traditional, typical vaccines in any way. Uh, some people say that it should be called simply genetic engineering. This is literally injecting into the human body for the first time in history ever on very, very radically short clinical trials, genetic information to tell individual cells to create a protein against which the body will develop antibodies. This is not the traditional technology. The observational period in the clinical trials was about three months. There are many problems with the clinical trials. I'd be happy to talk with you about. And so we're very concerned. There have been reports of widespread death in the elderly community. So there's been an attempt to target nursing homes. We have information that there were just 33 deaths in a Norwegian nursing home. Norway has now called for patients to be assessed on their frailty to see if they're actually fit for vaccination because this is a very severe immune system event. China has called for suspension of using the Pfizer vaccine in the elderly population. In New York State, where I'm located, there is a story about a nursing home in upstate New York that just had over 20 deaths immediately after giving the vaccine. And there are cases of younger, healthy people, a 56-year-old obstetrician in Florida who died within weeks of getting the vaccine. He developed thrombocytopenia, something that is known as a severe uh, adverse event from vaccination. A younger woman, 42, in Portugal died two days after getting the vaccine. One of the things that we warned about, our founder, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our chair, 
he wrote a letter to the FDA and to the NIH back in March saying, we knew that they were going to be using something called polyethylene glycol uh, in the lipid nanoparticle envelopes around the messenger RNA in the Moderna vaccine. And so he wrote to FDA and to uh, NIH saying, we know that 8% of the population has severe allergic reactions to PEG. Many, many medications are what they call pegylated. They, they contain PEG, which is thought to be inert, but the research now is suggesting it's not inert at all. It can cause severe allergic reactions. We know that that's gonna cause anaphylaxis in 8% of people, and they're gonna die if they don't get epinephrine. And in fact, um, we said you have to screen people for PEG sensitivity, and that wasn't done. And immediately after the rollout of these COVID vaccines in the United Kingdom, what did we see? Two people with severe anaphylactic shock. And, and those aren't the only problems. The real bottom line is, Michael, they skipped over animal trials. They had about three months of observations in predominantly extraordinarily healthy people. They exclude people with comorbid conditions from clinical trials. And we don't know what's gonna happen. But in the short period of time that we've already observed these products to be on the market, these mRNA vaccines, the CDC has reported um, about one in 42 serious adverse events, health outcome events, they call them. One in 42, that's more than 2%. That's a lot. And we've already got 66 reported deaths in our adverse event reporting system. A doctor uh, from uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, I mean, she was going over that. And then she said that a lot of these, uh, these sorts of instances can be expected because, I mean, you know, they're very frail. And if you give one of them a, a, a shot, well, we don't even know that, that, the sh that the shot was responsible for killing them, according to her, because we got to get these people vaccinated right away. But the, 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 the risk due to the vaccine is not like the risk due to, the, to COVID. So what, what do you say to that? Well, what we say to that is this is by its very definition, Michael, this is an experimental use authorization product. It is by its very definition experimental. And we subscribe to the Nuremberg Code, the foundation of ethical medicine, which says consent of the individual is absolutely essential. So now in Norway, they're recommending that people who have a short lifespan ahead of them, they shouldn't get this vaccine. Why should somebody's life be cut short just because they're frail? That There's no reason for that. So I think it's an individual choice. I think the reality is, is that we don't know all of the adverse effects that are likely from this vaccine and people are taking a, a calculated risk. COVID is treatable. Ivermectin has now been recognized as an appropriate treatment by the FDA. Certainly there's good science in other countries, not the US, but about hydroxychloroquine being used. Vitamin D deficiency is very closely associated with COVID morbidity and mortality. There are interventions for people who get COVID. The survival rate is in the high 90%. So it's an individual choice. Do people wanna take the risk of taking the vaccine or do they wanna preserve the risk that they might get sick, but that there are therapeutics available? That's an individual choice, given that this is at this point still an experimental product. Do you think that, uh, that the people are hearing the risks? I mean, anytime somebody, and even the doctor agreed, if anytime somebody gets a shot, they should be warned of, of all the risks. Do you think that's actually happening? 
No, I don't think that people are being adequately given. I don't think people are giving sufficient information. I don't think people are always being told that this is an experimental use authorization vaccine. It has not been licensed by the FDA um, and that it is by its very nature experimental. And there may be known and unknown side effects, including death. I don't think people are getting that information sufficiently. And that's what they need to be told in order to be able to give true informed consent. Consent implies that you have enough information on which to base a judgment. And if people are being told, oh, there's just gonna be a little pinch in your arm, but there's nothing else that can go wrong. That's just false information. Well, I was wondering, uh, could you mention uh, any of the other conflicts that, that causes your group to have doubts about accepting the vaccine? Well, obviously, for instance, the Moderna vaccine, um, which was the first, uh, which was uh, the second one on the market in the US, it's a co-production with the National Institutes of Health. So this is a public-private partnership. Sadly, th there's an obvious conflict of interest that the government is not eager, likely, to decide that its own product is uh, inadequate or is excessively dangerous. That's an inherent conflict. It's a very serious one. Uh, also, like I said, they skipped over animal trials. Uh, you know, the observation period is very short. They didn't do clinical trials in the target population. One of the target populations is the elderly, people of color. They didn't actually have large percentages of people in the clinical trials from those two target groups. So we, we have to expect that there are going to be adverse events that we didn't see in the clinical trials. And furthermore, very problematic um, information has come to light in the British Medical Journal in the last couple of weeks by the associate editor, Peter Doshi, who did a deeper dive in information that's just been published about the Pfizer clinical trial by the FDA in 4,000 pages he uncovered that many people had suspected COVID, but they didn't have a matching polymerase chain reaction test that confirmed that COVID. Well, if you added in the, the, un the suspected COVID cases, which are people who had clinical symptoms, you know, fever, achiness, you know, sick, if you added in all of those people, you ended up with an efficacy rate of 19% or maybe 29% if you excluded some right after the vaccination. That's a world of difference from the 95% efficacy that has been touted around the world. So there are just so many questions about this product that's being pushed out in this aggressive manner as if we know that it's going to solve the pandemic when in point of fact, we have no clue if it's going to solve the pandemic. Um, also, it was not tested for whether or not it stopped transmission. It was tested for whether it averted mild symptoms. What it's gonna do in terms of stopping transmission, we have no idea. You know, one of the points that, that were raised in, in the conversation with Dr. McGreer was the fact that you know, just because somebody gets a vaccine, well, we don't know for sure that they died from the vaccine. I mean, there could have been other uh, potential possibilities and, and that's possible, but it seems to me that when it comes to COVID, it doesn't matter how you died. If you had COVID, it was COVID. You know, so it seems as if there's a bit of a double standard there. I mean, I, I don't know, what, what do you think? I, I agree with that completely. I mean, Dr. Burks from the COVID task force, uh, 
said that, you know, we are going to count anyone who dies with COVID as a COVID death. So literally, if somebody dies in a motorcycle accident because a car ran into them, but they test positive at death or on after death with COVID, that's characterized as a COVID death. That's ridiculous. And yet that is what we have in the United States, at least. Now, uh, one of the other things she said, um, we, she talked about how long the COVID vaccine will actually be effective. And the, I mean, she herself said that, uh, I mean, if it only works against the, the virus for six or eight months, well, we may have to get another vaccine. Uh, so I mean, we're looking at every year, potentially, uh, I mean, unless we're really lucky, but every year, potentially, uh, we could have to go for our vaccine. Do you have any concerns that, and not only about the vaccine, but having to take it again and again and again? We have grave concerns about that. So, you know, we, we do a lot of um, study and put out a lot of information about the annual flu vaccines. So this is not comparable, the ones that have come on the market right now. These are novel technologies, these mRNA. But the flu vaccines we know cause the, the majority of the injuries in the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. It's the majority of injuries that are compensated by the US government. Flu vaccines, people die from the flu vaccines. If we now have annual COVID vaccines or joint annual flu slash COVID vaccines, you can be sure that they will cause injuries. I mean, that's just, you know, it is acknowledged that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. No one knows exactly how the given individual will react to this medication. You know, we never give prescription medications without examining the individual patient. And yet somehow we imagine that we can give quote unquote vaccines, a particular type of medication on a one size fits all basis. It doesn't work that way. It, it just doesn't work that way. It, it, you actually have to examine the patient to figure out whether this medication is really appropriate for this individual. And fortunately, the Norwegian health authorities have now said that about COVID vaccine. You need to examine whether this particular patient is fit for vaccination. If they are very frail, they are not fit for vaccination. Um, you know, uh, just a, a little while ago, you mentioned that we're, there, there were alternatives to vaccines. You mentioned things like I, I, ivermycin and, and vitamin D and so on. Um, but I mean, surely you have to have, uh, these things have to go through peer review at the very least before you can, you know, authorize it. Um, is that the case? I mean, can we legally go along with this or, or is there potentially a, a downside that has not been explored? Oh, I, I'm only talking about things that have been robustly peer reviewed, Michael. So, so the literature on vitamin D and COVID and other respiratory conditions is robust. This is peer reviewed science. And I'm telling you that uh, the FDA, I'm sorry, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the US just issued a statement saying that ivermectin is now considered appropriate for use against COVID. The United States has not embraced hydroxychloroquine. However, many physicians and scientists around the world have, and there again, there is robust peer-reviewed science showing that hydroxychloroquine and other chloroquine drugs are effective against COVID. There's no such thing as a perfect drug that doesn't cause side effects in some people. 
Um, but there are now therapeutics. I mean, the, the peak of this pandemic was a year, almost a year ago, it was March, April of 2020. We're now not in the peak and we have discovered effective, you know, combinations of things that seem to work effectively to prevent deaths and severe cases. Um, there's been a tendency on the part of the media to avoid talking about harm, it, it seems to me. Uh, plenty of pro-vaccination points, but the anti-vaccination point is generally ignored. Uh, could you talk about your experiences dealing with media? Yes. So we know that the media has really embraced the narrative of the pandemic and, you know, COVID 24-7 and the deaths and the horror. And we know that they have not published about anything about the therapeutics and have taken a very jaundiced view towards anyone who's critical in any way of uh, the vaccines or disputing the numbers and so on. I think it's a disservice to talk about the anti-vaccine movement. We don't consider ourselves at Children's Health Defense to be anti-vaccine. We're pro-science. We wanna see robust science. We wanna see robust discourse. We believe that you can only arrive at the right conclusion if you have free and open discourse about these issues and you publish all of the science. The media has really fallen down on its job in covering this story about the pandemic from our perspective. And because the media has so fallen down, we created at the end of 2020, an online newspaper that comes out five times a week called The Defender. And we are covering the adverse events and people can put in their comments. We want to have conversations. So it's, you know, www.childrenshealthdefense.org slash defender. Um, and we think that it's crucial that we talk about the adverse events and we talk about, you know, if, if, if the vaccine is working, great, but uh, we have reservations based on the clinical trials and about the suppression of information that's critical. Are, are there any other ways that uh, you've been having difficulty through the pandemic era? Well, we are actively, Michael, we are actively censored. I mean, we were thrown off of MailChimp. We have been closed down on Vimeo on our Facebook page for Children's Health Defense. We are routinely blocked from putting up certain stories and videos and they are labeled as false. So we are battling censorship on a daily basis. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., our chair, has been demeaned and criticized in an op-ed in the New York Times and was unable to publish any kind of response. So we are facing very real censorship uh, that is critical. I grew up believing that in a democracy, the loyal opposition is essential. You cannot get to the right public policy conclusions without robust debate, sort of the cauldron of debate as Robert Kennedy calls it. That's been dismissed, you know, now in sort of the, the cancel cultural world and the idea that censorship is somehow good for the public, you know, these ideas are, are, are very disturbing. That was a discussion with Mary Holland, the vice chair and general counsel for Children's Health Defense. For more on the group's work, please visit the site childrenshealthdefense.org. Just a reminder that what you heard in this broadcast was for informational purposes only. Please consult a physician before making any decisions about COVID and options to treat it. 
You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.